Father, we thank you for your amazing grace to sinners. We thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, and the only Savior. We thank you for these great hymns of the faith, Lord. We thank you that we, by your grace, have hearts to sing them, and to sing them, Lord, full-throated, with due passion, with due volume, with due joy. And Father, uh, we, we pray for greater strength to do so, greater zeal to do so, greater love to do so. And we pray that your word would have its way in us, Lord, that you would renew our minds, conform us to the image of your Son, set us free from the love of sin, set us free from the love of things that are passing away. And may we love Jesus supremely, and may we love that which Jesus loves supremely. May all else fall away. We ask, Father, that you would speak to us today. We, your children, you, our Father, who has set your eternal love upon us in your Son through the power of your Spirit. We pray your same Spirit would illumine the Word of God to us that he inspired and empower us to walk therein. We pray it. In the highest of names, the name of Jesus, before whom every knee will bow. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. The title of today's message is Armed for War. Armed for War from 1 Peter chapter 4. We're at war, saints. We're warring for the glory of God and the redemption of sinners. We are warring against sin. We are warring for righteousness. We are warring for truth. We are warring for children born and unborn. We are warring for civilization. We are warring against Satan, his demons, his doctrines of demons, his lies, and those that serve him and propagate his doctrines and his lies. Make no mistake, we are at war. Every day. 24 hours a day. Every minute, every second of the day, Satan and those who serve him are warring against our God and his Christ and his people and mankind as a whole. There is a war on, saints. We are at war. Are we armed for war? Are we armed for the war that is raging all around us? Well, our text today is written to arm us for the war that is ongoing and has been ongoing since the fall of man. If you haven't already opened your Bibles... Open them to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ Jesus suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account 
to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit, armed for war. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. The greater context that we have been studying in 1 Peter is one of suffering. And this is another application of that truth, another facet of that truth regarding Christian suffering. We are to look to Christ who suffered for us in the flesh and arm ourselves also with the same mind. The same mind. You see, Christ did not suffer in the flesh arbitrarily. Christ did not suffer in the flesh in a world of happenstance and chance. Christ suffered in the flesh for a purpose, to pay a price for a people for the glory of God. The reason, as you've heard me say many times, the reason there is a cosmos, the reason there are stars in it, the reason there's a star that we call the sun, there's a reason that there's a rock that we call the planet Earth revolving around that sun, the the reason that there are trees on that rock is so that Jesus Christ, the creator of it all, could enter into his creation through the womb of the Virgin Mary, coming in the likeness of men and yet without sin, to be crucified for sinners, to be buried and to be resurrected on the third day, conquering sin and Satan and death on behalf of all those who will repent and confess him as Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead to the glory of God. That's the reason for everything. That is the divine purpose for it all. And thus we are to put on the mind of Christ. And that gives purpose to everything and gives purpose in particular to our suffering, to our hardships, to our trials, to our difficulties. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from Sin. So we're to arm ourselves with the same mind, lest we be what? Discouraged. Lest we be downtrodden. Lest we even be like Israel out there in the face of so many discouragements, so many challenges, like where are we going to get water? Where are we going to get food? And oh, the Egyptians want to kill us. Oh, and the Canaanites want to kill us. Everybody wants to kill us. You've brought us out here to die, Moses. You brought us out here to die, God. This isn't good. We followed you, Moses, because you said God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. And now all we have is a stinking manna. Remember that? Oh, saints, God wants you to keep your eyes upon Jesus as your example, that you might have victory in this world that is opposed to Jesus. That you might have victory in this world where death reigns. Death is the rule. 
The wage of sin is death, and death is upon mankind, and it comes in so many ugly and horrific ways. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. The same mind. This was the mind of God, the mind of Christ from eternity past. And it was the mind of God in flesh, Jesus the Christ, every day that he lived as he marched toward that cross and men hated him, men despised him. He preached his first message and everyone said, amen, that was beautiful. When can we hear you again, right? No, they said, let's throw him off the cliff. He was hated and despised and rejected by men. Again and again and again. They sought to kill him many times. Sometimes he struck them blind and walked through their midst. Sometimes he spoke such profound truth that they had to just back up and let him go, lest the people tear them apart. Nevertheless, they sought to kill him and finally did and chose a known criminal over him. Give us Barabbas. Murder him. Oh, excuse us. Crucify him. Crucify him. Why did Jesus allow this? Why did God, holy, 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 the Son, come in the likeness of men and dwell with us, dwell with sinners, his own beloved apostles that he revealed himself to again and again. And, and yet you see this pettiness and this sin in, in that inner core. And he put up with that. He, he loved them. He, he taught them. And then he, on the broader perspective, he put up with mankind uniting against him. Crucify him. Crucify him. We have no Lord but Caesar. The Jews, his own people. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah of the Jews. He's the king of the line of David. And the Romans uniting against him. Why would he do this? Supremely, foremost, for the glory of God. The chief end of all things is the glory of God. Secondly, for the love of men. For the love of sinners. Those who he came to suffer and die for. He didn't suffer and die for Peter because Peter was an innately good man or an innately bright man. He was just bright enough to discern the truths of God. He came and suffered and died for Peter because he was a sinner and he set his love upon Peter and determined to make him a trophy of grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and Peter, the apostle. A man like you and I. And Paul and all of the rest of them. Men like you and I. Women like you and I, Mary, his mother, a sinner like you and I, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and his finished work on the cross. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, look to Christ. Look at his astounding love. Look how far he was willing to go. Look what he was willing to suffer, the hatred and ugliness of men, the beatings of man. He who is omnipotent, let men beat him. He was only, the only one worthy of all worship and honor and praise. Let men 
mock him, despise him, spit on him, crucify him, wag their heads at him as he hung there, bearing their iniquities, both thieves mocking him. And then by the grace of God, one thief being born again from above and confessing him as Lord and being assured today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. By grace alone, through faith alone, a mocker no more, a blasphemer no more, and a worshiper of the Lord Jesus, saved without any works, without any baptism, without any communion taking, without any wafer eating, without any church attendance or Sunday school attendance buttons. But none of that. It was all on Christ's merit, all Christ's work, all Christ's righteousness received upon him. One who was dying justly for his sins. He was justly put on the cross for his sins, that thief. But the Lord is pleased to save sinners, even as wicked as a sinner as one who would publicly mock him. Think of that. You're being crucified next to him and you're mocking him. You're blaspheming him. And yet one of them was a trophy of grace and granted repentance and faith in the midst of all that. What glory. What glory. And this is our example. This is he that we are to look to. The Christ who suffered for us in the flesh. He set his love upon us. He endured all of that for love, for you and I. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Arm yourself. There's a war on. Is the war worthy? Yes! Infinitely worthy. Is it worthy of fighting the war? Yes. Is it worthy to fight a good fight? Yes. Is it worthy of your sufferings? Is it worthy of your life? The expense of your time and energy, resources, blood? Yes. All glory to the King. You exist for His glory. You breathe for His glory. Every nanosecond you have is granted to you for His glory. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, the mind of Christ. 1 Timothy 1.15 sums up the mind of Christ. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Arm yourself. Also, with the same mind. Do you want your life to have purpose and reason? Then embrace the purpose of Christ. The reason that there's a cosmos. The reason there's a solar system with a sun in the middle of it. The reason there are these rocks going around that sun, that star, one of them called earth. The reason there are trees on it is so that Christ Jesus could come into the world to save sinners to the glory of God. Arm yourself with this same mind. In God's good providence in my life, I joined the United States Marine Corps before I was a Christian. In the United States Marine Corps, 
contrary perhaps to some of the advertising, is not a place of all fun all the time. Often there is suffering, hardship, discomfort to the extreme. And praise God, what made it all worthwhile, what made six years of that worthwhile, what made me rise up in so many circumstances of hardship with joy was that I was there for Jesus Christ and His glory in the redemption of sinners. What a profound training ground. What a beautiful seminary for a life of gospel ministry. That you either sink or swim in this environment You either give in and go with the flow and you're just there enduring, suffering day by day. You're away from your friends. You're away from your family. You're away from any kind of comfortable bed. You're away from any sense of safety or security. You're away from good food. Drinking water out of giant containers that say, do not drink poison out in the middle of the desert and trusting that it's not really poison. I don't know why that's written there. They said we should drink it. What made it for me a grand adventure was Christ. Serving my king. I love my wife. I love my children. And it broke my heart to leave my wife. I'm not a crier. I haven't cried since maybe the third grade, really. In the middle of a fight, I was crying. I thought, why am I crying? I don't need to cry. It's just pain. I decided to stop and stopped. But for the first time in my life, my eyeballs got sweaty. First time in my adult life when I had to leave my wife to go overseas for six months, the United States Marine Corps. And at that juncture, I was thinking as I was leaving her in the airport, why, Lord? How can this be the will of the Lord? How? And then I got on that plane, and some of you heard this story, but... You're going to hear it again. I got on that plane on the last seat on the Southwest Airlines flight, the last seat that was open up front where you're facing the people across from you and there are these two elderly people and these two bratty children. I thought it was grandma and grandpa and their grandchildren who needed the spanking. And the kids sitting across from me kicking me. <laughs> I had sat down and leaned over and pretended to be asleep because I didn't want to interact with anyone. I wasn't on that plane for Christ. I was on that plane sorrowing my loss. Woe is me, Lord. How could you allow this kind of thing? The kid's kicking me. Eventually, I opened my eyes, and the man who I thought was his grandfather was was trying to stop him. Turned out he just some kids flying alone and a sweet elderly couple. But this man began to share the gospel with me. And I told him, uh, Sir, thank you. I am a Christian. Thank you, that's so rare and wonderful that you would share the gospel with me. And he said, well, what are you doing? What's going on in your life? Well, I, I just left my wife, my kids. Oh, really? I did that once upon a time. And this little ruckus called World War II. And he was absent from his wife, as I recall, and children for years. He went from campaign to campaign, from island hopping to... Europe, and you can imagine how many phone calls he had and the distance between letters in a world that was 
and complete upheaval in the midst of World War II. And praise God, he made it home whole. And the Lord had watched over him all that time, and he's telling me this testimony of God's faithfulness. And now he's sitting next to his bride, who he was married to all that time, who waited for him. And they're just returning, I believe, from their great-grandchildren's wedding, or great-grandchild's wedding, and flying back to their ranch, (laughs) where they have lived all these years since and served the Lord. It was the perfect man and perfect wife and the perfect spot on the perfect plane at the perfect time to remind me that the Lord is in control. And that woke me up and my sorrows ceased and I knew I was in the hand of the Lord and going where He wanted me. And that was true even without that near special revelation. The perfect man. How many men on the planet could have given me that kind of encouragement? I was only leaving for six or seven months. Not years. I wasn't going to World War II. And so praise God, the adventure of serving Christ began. And day by day, difficulty by difficulty, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ himself gave me victory, gave me joy, gave me peace. I look back on that time as a time where the Lord had His hand upon me and blessed me. And I praise God for that time. There are times in my life where it's not as clear. My eyes aren't as fixed upon Christ as they should be. And where sufferings strike me much deeper. Because I'm not well armed. I'm not well armed. I have not put on the mind of Christ. The mind of the world is to get your best life now. The mind of the world is to find your happiness in all the world's goods. And I'm not speaking just of wicked things, even neutral things. But neutral things become wicked if you're trying to find your happiness in them instead of Christ and His Great Commission mission. Not everybody's a gospel preacher. Not everybody's the Apostle Paul or Peter. But ultimately, whether we're on the front lines as a minister of the gospel, standing before God and men preaching Christ crucified, or whether we're on the front lines in the home fighting a good fight for our children, or whether we're on the front lines in the grocery or outside the abortion clinic or whether on the front lines in college or in the workplace or in our extended family, we're all in the war. And the war rages every day and Satan is seeking to destroy and damn everyone you love. Therefore, We must arm ourselves with the same mind. And it gives purpose to every day. It gives purpose to the daily hardships, even the the monotony, doing the same thing again as mothers. I love you mothers. You do so many of the same tasks over and over and over. It can be frustrating. I get it. Didn't I just clean that up? Didn't I just put that back? Didn't I just tell you not to do that? 
It gives purpose to all of that. Because you're not just cleaning things up. You're not just putting things back. You're not just telling them no or yes, or no, 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 yes. You're seeking to lead them to Christ. You're seeking to conform them to righteousness. You're seeking to bring the law of the Lord upon them that it might be a tutor to bring them to Christ to be justified by faith. And once they professed faith, you're seeking to hold them in the faith, keep them on the narrow path of life, and protect them from the pitfalls of sin and Satan that he would set up before them to devour them. And so there is purpose in that home ministry called motherhood. Homemaking is soul winning. And there's glory in it. Homeschooling. God bless you mothers. Homeschooling. Oh me, oh my. Special sounds. Madness. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're not a homeschooler. Learning those special sounds, all those vowels and how they all mix together. Learning the mixes and matches. Teaching kids to read and you think, this child must have gotten dropped when I was not home. Honey, did you drop this child when I wasn't home? Because that child's just not getting it. And one day, poof, the child gets it. Glory! The child gets it. But why teach a child to read so the child can stand up without shame and read the McDonald's menu? So the child can read whatever fool thing he or she wants to on a Google page? No, teach the child to read so the child can read the Word of God. That the child might know God and love God. If your mother taught you to read, ooh, you're a blessed child. If your mother taught you to read and brought you to the Word of God, oh, you are an eternally blessed child. What grace God has lavished upon you to give you a mother, to teach you to read, to, to give her life that you might be well-nourished, that you might be taught to read, that you might know God and love Him and serve Him and be washed in the blood of the Lamb by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus and His finished work alone. What a profound ministry. What a glory motherhood is. What a glory homemaking is. It's a war. And you grandmothers aren't done. I used to fret over my children that they, each one would come to a clear confession of Jesus Christ. And I'll fret over them to some level until I'm dead and gone, or they are, that they finish well. But now I've got these grandchildren, and they keep coming. And now I fret over their souls. I pray for their souls. They must come to Christ. They must bend their knee. There's a war on for the souls of my grandchildren. And I'm very concerned that my children fight for my grandchildren and labor for their souls and protect them from the pitfalls that Satan would put before them. I'm concerned for your children and your grandchildren. Because there is a war on. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. Arm yourself lest you be discouraged. Arm yourself lest you be distracted. And you think it's peacetime. Peacetime is in heaven to come. There's a war on. When we are conscious of the war, like World War II, everyone is willing to sacrifice. 
Everyone's willing to give up their son or their husband. In fact, it would be a shame for you to stay home. There's a war on. If they couldn't go fight, they felt shame. There's a war on. For civilization. Thus, we send our husbands, we send our sons. Thus, we buy war bonds. Thus, we plant gardens to provide food for ourselves from our own backyard. Thus, we ration gas. We make sacrifices as a nation for civilization because evil is advancing in the earth because there's a war on and everybody knows it and it would be to your shame if you weren't making those sacrifices. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. Fix your eyes upon Christ. Fix your eyes upon His cross. Fix your eyes upon His mission. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you haven't memorized it yet, there it is. 1 Timothy 1.15 Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That, that's a clarifying verse. It keeps you on mission. On mission for your children, on mission for your grandchildren, on mission for your neighbors. On mission at work. On mission going to and fro in the earth. Arm yourselves with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past, time, past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. And so we are on mission. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There are hardships in life. Hardships directly related to our stand for righteousness, our stand for the gospel, and hardships that just come in a fallen world. Things like, I already mentioned, monotony, illnesses, death. Other sinners in the world that aren't as nice to you as they should be, or worse, that are outright evil and doing terrible things. Atrocities even, historically, and presently, in the world. How can we endure by putting on the mind of Christ? It brings purpose to everything. It brings victory to the most difficult of circumstances. But if we don't do that, what are we usually doing? We're seeking our best life now to some level. And it's hard to stay just in those neutral things of seeking our best life now. We just want to have fun. We just want to have a good time. We just want to be happy. We're not about Christ. We're not about his mission. The Great Commission, it's not great. It's not great. It's not. All authority given to me in heaven and earth, go therefore make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord be with you always, even to the end of the age. Not really interested, thanks. That's most of Christianity. Not really interested in the Great Commission, thank you. 
Not really interested in keeping the main thing, the main thing. Not really interested in being armed for war. War? What war? I'm having a good time. It's about a good time. Well, the war rages and your neighbors perish. We're just, we just want to have a good time. Just want to be happy. Have everybody like us. Everybody approve us. Think we're nice people, right? We got the Christian be nice sticker. We got the Christian tolerance sticker, whether we have it or not. Most Christians are living that way. We want everyone to think we're, we're great people. We're, we're just like them. We're going with the flow. It's a dangerous way to try to live the Christian life because that's not the Christian life. Mark 8, 34, this is the Christian life defined by Christ. Mark 8, 34, the Lord Jesus defines the Christian life with these words. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life, get your best life now to some level or another. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Is Jesus a liar? No. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. You'll lose it to some level. Maybe you'll still be saved, but you'll be saved just through fire. All your works burned up. They were no good. They weren't for the glory of God. They weren't about the main thing, Christ's glory and the redemption of sinners. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Some will lose it like that. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus, but a very mediocre Christian life. Not really truly the Christian life that God has designed. Others will find that actually they were on the wrong side of that. It wasn't a Christian life at all. Christ wasn't their Lord. Uh, they professed him as Lord, but their life totally denied him as Lord. And they'll hear, they, they will hear from Jesus, go from me, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it, eternally save it. The peace is coming. The joy is coming. The unending happiness is coming. Believe Jesus. He's not a liar. You want to find a liar? Look in the mirror. Who lies to you the most? The man or woman looking at you in the mirror. Every time he or she says, Jesus is a liar. Oh, and you may not be so bold as to stand in the mirror and say, Jesus is a liar. But when you are living as if he's a liar, trying to get your happiness and peace and joy now in this wicked generation, instead of your happiness and peace and joy in the world to come, in heaven to come, a new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness dwells. And by the way, there will still be joy, real joy, and real victory, and real love, and real happiness. But there will be real sacrifices. But you know what I always say, choose this day what you want to suffer for. Do you want to suffer for sin, or do you want to suffer for righteousness? You will suffer. Which one do you want to suffer for, sin or righteousness? Jesus defines Christianity saying, you want to follow me? Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, me and my words, 
Are you ashamed of Jesus and his words? Oh, the shame is growing, folks. It's growing. It's spreading like a disease. Are you ashamed of Jesus and his words? I want to be on the other end of the spectrum. I want to stand up and yell the name of Jesus. Jesus! The one name under heaven, given among men, but you must be saved. I want to stand up and yell it just to make sure I'm not ashamed. Because the shame is coming. It's a disease, and it's connected to fear and self-love. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, my law, my righteousness, my definition of sin and evil and righteousness and the gospel, whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. You don't understand, Lord, it's a really adulterous and sinful generation. No, I understand. It's a really adulterous and sinful generation. Nevertheless, you are to be unashamed of me and my words in it. Unashamed. If we're silent, how unashamed we are, are we? If we have Satan and his servants warring against Christ and his righteousness and his gospel, and we're silent, we're unwilling to make any sacrifices we're not even willing to sacrifice the applause and the good opinion of our neighbors. Something is desperately wrong. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Whose shame do you want to receive? When we stand up for Jesus, when we stand up for the gospel, when we stand up for the unborn outside of abortion clinic, you know what many, many people do, usually women, sadly? Shame on you. And they'll do the classic grade school thing where they're, they're rubbing two fingers together. Shame on you. No, the shame is on you. And we're here to warn you, unless you repent, you will perish Whose shame do we want to suffer? Do we want the world to say, shame on you? Or do we want the Lord Jesus to be ashamed of us? Do we want our friends and unsaved family members to say, shame on you? Or do we want the Lord Jesus to say, shame on you? Well, let us be unashamed of Jesus. Let us be unashamed of his words, his truth, his standard of righteousness, his narrow path of life, his to tell us die. Let us be supremely ashamed of our shame, that we would be ashamed of Jesus, our only boast, that we would be ashamed of his righteousness, his moral standard, and rather capitulate to evil an evil, adulterous generation. And so therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. There's a war on. If you're not armed, to some level you will fail. To some level you will falter. To some level you will experience apostasy. Arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh. For the lusts of men, he was died to self, has ceased from sin. That he should no longer 
live the rest of time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. You know, that's how I felt at 17 in boot camp, maybe 18, I don't know the exact day, but I had a happy birthday in boot camp. But I got saved in boot camp, reading the word of God, gloriously, radically saved by the grace of God. And I thought, wow, I've wasted my life. I was so young, right? But I've wasted my life. All this time wasted. Now I want to serve the Lord. And initially I wanted out of my six-year contract because I got to serve the Lord. I, I figured out in time, the Lord had me right where he wanted me to serve the Lord. In that context. We have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. We don't want to live just like the Gentiles. We don't want to spend all of our time just like the Gentiles. How is our time being spent? We don't want just a slightly more sanctified version of how the Gentiles live. For we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That's the life of the unsaved. And it's only getting worse out there. It ebbs and flows in every culture and every time. But oh, it's flowing right now. It's flowing. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, and all mixed together. Drinking and drugs and sexual immorality and idolatry and all mixed together. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you, know, that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Does anyone speak evil of you? That's a good test. That's a good test. Does anyone speak evil of you? If not, then this little light of mine isn't shining. Let it shine. It's not your light. It's the light of Christ. If he is in you, turn that light up. Turn you down. Turn that light up. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. You don't laugh at their lewd jokes. You certainly don't involve yourself in the lewdness. You don't tell the lewd jokes. You don't do the lewd things. You don't engage in the lusts. You don't say have fun when they're engaging in those lusts. You don't engage in a life of drunkenness. And enjoy their drunken parties, their drinking parties. It's one thing to attend a party where there are alcoholic beverages served. It's another to be at a drinking party where there may be some food served. And it's never just alcohol and never just drunkenness. There's a whole slew of sins that come with it. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries. You know what always goes in this environment? Fornication, adultery, sodomy, all those various forms of sexual immorality. Revelries here refers to 
ancient gatherings and present, tragically. And it's going on. It's going on at the colleges. It's going on all over the place. It's going on in the, in the wealthy and famous. Epstein Island. That's what they're talking about. Revelries. Drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Which, of course, leads to, what is it now, 1.345 billion babies being slaughtered. It's all connected. In regard to these, I think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. They think it's strange. You don't laugh at those jokes. You don't look at those websites. You don't look at those magazines. That's probably years ago. But you, you don't watch those movies. You, you, you don't go to the drinking parties. You don't swim in the flood of dissipation. Therefore, they speak evil of you. They won't tolerate your righteousness. They won't tolerate you standing up for Christ and his moral standard. They won't tolerate you proclaiming God's law as a tutor to bring men to Christ to be justified by faith. They won't tolerate you proclaiming the narrow path of life in Jesus Christ. They won't tolerate you standing upon the telestai of Jesus. It is finished. And exposing the dead religious systems of works righteousness that man has created. In regard to these, they think it's strange you do not run with them in the flood of dissipation. There's an apostasy afoot. It's been increasing in the broader realm of Christianity. In 2014, Russell Moore, then president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, advised Southern Baptists to attend a gay wedding reception as a gesture of affection towards a homosexual friend or relative. Moore was criticized for this stance, and rightly so. Now, he, he took the, quote, moral stand of saying, don't attend the wedding, but go to the reception. Yet, Moore's advice is inextricably entangled with a fundamental flaw. It tacitly endorses what Scripture explicitly identifies as an ungodly Union, I would even say an abomination. The Bible's portrayal of marriage as a sacred covenant between a man and a woman is clear and non-negotiable. Deviating from this divine decree is not merely a transgression. It's an act of defiance against God's sovereignty. And secondarily, because the greatest sin is always that which is directly against God, but secondarily, it is hatred of the homosexual or lesbian couple. It's hatred toward God and hatred toward man. In the name of love and affection. To show affection, a gesture of affection. Deviating from this divine decree is not merely a transgression, it's an act of defiance against God's sovereignty. Participation in such ceremonies is far from benign. It's a visible public affirmation of a relationship that stands in direct opposition to the sanctity of marriage as ordained by God. And that's putting it mildly. That's leaving off the biblical terms for that sin. But to be fair, Moore only suggested that one attend the reception, but not the actual wedding, which is why it is amazing that any supposedly solid Reformed Christian would not only take that stance, but take it even further, recommending 
to his followers that they not only attend the reception, but the actual ceremony as well, and to buy them a gift. But this is what Alistair Begg has done this last week. During his Truth for Life program, Alistair Begg offered a scenario where a Christian woman called in saying that her grandson is about to marry a transgendered person, which is confusing. So it's either a, another man who has, a, has transitioned to a woman or a woman who has transitioned into a man. Of course, they're still a male or female. Whatever they're pretending to be is irrelevant. But she wanted to know if she should attend the wedding. She asked Pastor Alistair Begg, should I attend the wedding? Noting that, quote, people may not like this answer, unquote, Begg says that as long as, his, as the grandson knows that she believes it's sinful and she does not agree with it, then she should attend the ceremony and even buy them a gift. Because if not, her absence will simply reinforce the fact that she is judgmental and critical. He was being interviewed on his program, Truth for Life, by a man named Bob. Bob says, I think every pastor who preaches, every author who writes a book like this, comes away thinking, I hope my readers, my listeners, or my listeners will think differently as a result of their interaction with this, will feel differently and act differently. As you think about this book and your prayer for this book, what do you hope will be different? How do you hope people will be different after they have read this book and they've meditated on this sermon? So that's a very neutral question. You could go anywhere with it. Alistair Begg responds, well, first of all, you know, I hope that I will be different. The old song that we never sing, you know, quote, it's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I mean, that is profoundly the case. And so I hope that would be multiplied. I hope that our church family, those who choose to read this book, that it might have an impact among us because learning to say, I'm sorry, learning to say, please forgive me, learning to say, you know, I'm not at my best at the moment. Can you come alongside me? Learning to say, yes, I know that these people believe a very different agenda, that their lifestyle is oriented in another direction, and learning to say, but I have no basis upon which I could argue that I myself would not be where they are were it not for the amazing grace of God, were it not for his compassion towards me. And all that mumbo-jumbo is apostasy. It's a departure from the faith. He goes on, and in very specific areas... This comes across. I mean, you and I know that we field questions all the time that go along the lines of, quote, my grandson is about to be married to a transgender person and I don't know what to do about this. And I'm calling to ask you to tell me what to do, which is a huge responsibility, Alistair Begg says. And in a conversation like that, just a few days ago, and people may not like this answer, but I asked the grandmother, so this is a real grandmother, I asked the grandmother, quote, does your grandson understand your belief in Jesus? Yes. Does your grandson understand that your belief in Jesus makes it such that you can't countenance any affirming way, in any affirming way, the choices that he has made in life? Oh, that is so bland. That is so lukewarm. That is so milk toast, Alistair Begg. Does your grandson understand that your belief in Jesus makes it such that you can't countenance in any affirming way the choices that he has made in life? Yes. I said, he really said this to a real grandmother. I said, well then, okay. As long as he knows that, then I suggest that you do go to the ceremony. And I suggest that you buy them a gift. 
you go to a mirage ceremony, not a marriage, that blasphemes our Lord, that will only serve to further damn those involved, not just the so-called couple, but all those applauding it, all those there to say, wow, that was wonderful. We affirm this. And what are you saying when you go? Unless you stand up and protest it, you've applauded it. You've affirmed it, no matter what you do. And what are you saying when you give them a gift? You are bringing a blessing upon that evil union that's going to damn their eternal souls. This is the spirit of apostasy, saints, and it's growing, it's spreading, it's a disease. Don't catch it. Guard yourself. Oh, Alistair Begg continues. Oh, she said, what? She was caught off guard. I said, well, here's the thing. Your love for them may catch them off guard, but your absence will simply reinforce the fact that they said, these people are what I always thought, judgmental, critical, unprepared to countenance anything. And it's a fine line, isn't it? It really is. And people need to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. But I think we're going to take that risk. We're going to have to take that risk a lot more if we want to build bridges into the hearts and lives of those who don't understand Jesus and don't understand that he is king. Bob responds. John tells us he was full of grace and truth. And we have to figure out how we can be full of grace and truth at the same time, don't we? Alistair Begg. Yeah, yeah. Our words should be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Bob, yes. Alistair, it's so easy to get that upside down. And when a pastor does, then that will take on a role in a congregation as well and flavor it. And so, you know, let not many of you become teachers. Really, Alistair Begg? You end that apostate teaching, quoting scripture, that not many of you should become teachers? He's calling judgment down upon himself, upon his ministry, upon his church, upon that grandmother, upon her grandson, upon all those who attend there and see Christian grandma affirming this evil. And what does our text say? By the way, I didn't plan to speak to this, but as I studied this week, preparing to preach this text, I thought, this is the perfect illustration of doing the opposite, of doing that which is evil, instead of that which is loving and good. Refusing to put on your armor and capitulating to the world. What does our text say? Verse 4. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. What does Alistair Begg say? To justify going to the homosexual wedding and giving them a gift, affirming their unholy union? He says, well, there's the thing. Your love for them may catch them off guard, but your absence will simply reinforce the fact that they said these people are what I always thought, judgmental, critical, unprepared to countenance anything. And then Bob and Alistair went on to justify that further. Alistair Begg claims to be reformed. He claims to believe in God's 
sovereignty. It claims to believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. It claims to believe that the scriptures make men wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It claims to believe that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, but he just burned all that and then sealed it up with the statement that not many should become teachers and that what we teach, it ends up flavoring the whole congregation. And so I want to flavor the congregation with apostasy. That's what he's doing. Alistair Begg is not armed for war. With so many of these men, you know why they're not armed for war? Because they are professional Bible preachers. They are not gospel warriors. They are going about their profession. But they are not on the battlefield. When you are regularly on the battlefield, dealing with real people, real men, real women, caught up in all sorts of sins, being drugged down to hell in them, contending for their souls, you do not make this kind of mistake. And by the way, once you've made this kind of mistake, it's Ichabod. You're done. He is disqualified. It's not a wee mistake. It's not, why oh, I, I misspoke a little bit. This is not a little bit of a misstep. Sit down, Alistair Begg. Go home, Alistair Begg. What John MacArthur needs to say to Alistair Begg is go home. Right now, Alistair Begg's invited to speak at the Shepherds Conference. I'm praying he'll be told to go home. Please join me in that prayer. Armed for war. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. We're now running to homosexual weddings with gifts. We're running in the dissipation of our age with gifts because we wouldn't want them to think we're judgmental. Well, I want them to think God is a just judge and to fear him, which is the beginning of knowledge. And thus, I can't condone by my attendance, that which God hates and will send them to hell for. And so I will make it very clear to my grandson, because I love him, never, ever would I attend such a wedding that will damn your precious soul and the one you're supposedly being wed to. It's not a wedding. It's an abomination because your relationship is an abomination. And I love you enough to tell you so. I love that other young man enough to tell him so. And I'll tell everyone so. You know, I'll be there. I'll be outside. You'll see me. I'll be the one preaching. You know what? I will go. And I'll preach. And if ever there was a time for a woman to preach, yeah, Grandma, be a Deborah outside that wedding. God rebuke Alistair Begg and shut his mouth forever lest he repent and be repentant a good long time before he ever steps foot in a pulpit. This is capitulating to the apostasy of our age, in the, the place where the battle is raging the hottest. And hear me, you are not a faithful man or woman at all. You are not a faithful servant of Christ at all if you're merely faithful in all those places where Satan isn't attacking, where the war is not raging. You're just a pretender. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. Oh, Alistair will get applause from the world for this. He'll get applause from all the other apostates for it. If I go to Shepherd's Conference, he'll get no applause from me. 
I will not sit under his preaching. He will be rebuked by me. Verse 5. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Those who would condemn us for standing in righteousness, those who would condemn us for standing up for the words of Jesus regarding good and evil, regarding true gospel and false gospel, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, the grandma should have been counseled, oh no, you can't go to this wedding unless you go to stand outside of it and call your grandson and everyone there to repentance. As a righteous Deborah, no, you cannot go. And, and they will likely despise you to some level, maybe hate you even. But that will be further judgment upon them. And you don't want to heap judgment on them by applauding their sin and ushering them down the path of destruction. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Warn them. Warn them. Their judgment will come. Their frolicking and sin will end. Their, how do you think that reception is going to go? Their wicked reception. Drunken celebration of this evil will end. And their sin will devour them in life and in eternity. There is no happiness there. There is no joy there. There's only the facade of happiness and joy. The wage of sin is death. Do not be deceived. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And that's a warning to them and a comfort to us in the sense of the world despising and hating us for standing up for Christ and his words. They're going to be judged. They're judging us. They're saying, oh, you're evil. You're hateful. You're a homophobe. You're a misogynist because you believe the word of God. No, that's righteousness. God defines good and evil. He defines love and hate. What Alistair Begg just defined as love is hate. What Russell Moore before him defined as love or affection is hate. Verse 6. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now this is not the gospel being preached to people who are dead. It's the gospel being preached to people who were alive who are now dead. Just so you understand. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. Men judge them, but they're dead. They've been killed for the faith. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be saved, that they might come out from under the judgment of God eternally. And so take comfort, even though the judgment of man put them to death, they are out from under the judgment of God now and forever. For this reason the gospel was preached to them, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. They are alive. They are alive. For in Christ there's life and life abundant for all of eternity. In Christ there's true love and true joy and true peace 
Sin, the wage of sin, death, tears, all gone. In Christ, there's life and abundance, wealth beyond imagination. The streets are gold. (laughs) That's what you walk around on. Oh, saints, don't be deceived by this world. Don't run after everything the world runs after. Don't try to find your satisfaction and peace in the things that are all passing away. Put on the armor of Christ. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Arm yourselves, saints. Most Christians would have believed Alistair Begg was armed. He's naked and wretched. Arm yourself. Don't be found naked before a holy God and wretched. Arm yourselves also with the same mind. We live now globally. There's really no place you can go because of cable, internet, radio. We live in Sodom and Gomorrah. Arm yourself. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The only reason you're still in the world is to save sinners. Oh, you can enjoy some ice cream along the way, but don't make that your hope. Don't make that your peace. Don't make that your joy. Christ is your hope. He's your peace. He's your joy. And His great commission is your mission. It's your purpose. And in that, you find victory. In that, you find joy. In that, you find happiness. In the worst of circumstances. There's a war on, saints. And that's not going to change until Christ returns. Then there will be peace. May our eyes be open and fixed upon Christ. May our feet be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. May our waist be girded with truth. May our chest be covered with the breastplate of righteousness. May our head have the helmet of salvation upon it firmly. Clarity in the gospel. May our arm have the shield of faith fixed upon it to protect us from all the fiery darts, the lies of the evil one. And may our hand of war have the sword of the Spirit in it to fight a good fight for our King, our King, who died for us and lives for us and is coming for us soon. Let's pray. Father, we are sobered by this word and sobered, Lord, by these current events and the growing apostasy around us. May we not forget what we've heard. May we not forget the truth of the Holy Scriptures. May we be armed as you would have us to be armed. May we put on Christ and be busy in his mission and the various realms of responsibility you have called us to. Guard us from incremental compromise, from incremental steps of apostasy. And we pray, Father, you grant repentance to Alistair Begg, repentance to all those who would protect him in this great step of apostasy rather than calling him to repentance. We pray, Father, this would be an hour of revival in your church. We pray that Pastor John MacArthur and others would stand up and tell him to go home. We pray his church would call him to sit in the back pew, repentant, 
and call another to preach. We pray this crack in the wall will be shored up and that the sheep of your fold will be protected. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.